Lord, we agree with all those prayers and do desire to see you working in all of these circumstances. And as Dwayne prayed, we do in fact need you moment by moment, day by day. We desire to learn and to be consistent in walking with you as we look into your word. Give us every resource. We praise you for that. We desire that we be reminded of the truths that we're looking at in the passage today. So we just praise you today, desiring that you would uh, help us to clear our minds of things that might distract and help us to be able to understand, in fact, illumine our, our minds to understand your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to have Jenny and Malthuselah with us <laughs> today. We've been looking at very blessed truths in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8 particularly. Appreciate you all enduring as we went through chapter 7. I don't know how many months it took us to get through that, but a little depressing, a little uh, negative you might say. Let's use the word convicting. Convicting maybe, okay. That's also the, the case, but... In the book of Romans chapter 8, we have the positive aspect, the power, the availability of what God has provided. Provided to those that live through the most difficult situations, like the Romans in the first century that had to endure persecution, and like those that we prayed for around the world that are suffering in persecuted lands, particularly the missionaries there. So no matter where we find ourselves, whether in Rome or somewhere else, Connie? Slide back. Slide back. Even though this one is is just as good. So that flooring that is there, that was the flooring and everything underneath was like catacombs where the prisoners and the animals were kept or what? What is your waving your head no? Well, it was used for two purposes. One for that, but it's also used for actors coming out part of the place. So it wasn't just names. like the backstage, yeah. yeah. So in, in most of the, of the the theaters at that time had uh, an area underneath the floor, and that was part of their production. You know, an actor would appear, well, he'd come up to hold the floor. And this is where they get in costume. So yeah, it was for the the animals, but, but it was uh, it was designed not for the animals. I think that was later. This was was designed into it for entertainment. Yeah. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Uh, the only thing I correct is this is one of the unique ones that has everything below. Most of the theaters are just amphitheaters in terms of half. In fact, most of them that you find in the ancient Near East are yeah, so like half. Had, this this is a full. Yes. This was full. And mm-hmm. those that were half would have like a stage in the back. Mm-hmm. And some had it under the floor. Sopopolis did. Did it? Yep. Okay. Yeah, but most of them did not. So was this a place where chariot races were? No. Okay. Good. I was no. trying to imagine how you would do it. Okay. In fact, this one is very, very unique. It's the, obviously the biggest one in the ancient world. But Christians were persecuted inside there, particularly later, later in the first century, because it wasn't completed, I think, 79 or somewhere in there. But... Obviously, it would have been in, under construction throughout the first century, just the size of it. 
So we're looking at sanctification again. Just a quick reminder, chapter 6 lays out the basic principles, baptism in the Holy Spirit, basic principles and other related principles. We mentioned being in chapter 7 for several weeks, maybe months maybe, I don't remember how many. But because of the fact that we still have the old nature, that introduces all kinds of problems, so we need to deal with it. But the solution in chapter 8 is the power of the Holy Spirit made available to each and every one of us. And even though 6 emphasizes the basic principles, there's still other principles that stem from that that we develop from chapter 7. And then also in chapter 8, one of the keys is the power of the Holy Spirit in us fulfills the requirement of the law. That's the statement of verse 3. In other words, we don't, in our own efforts, try to obey. We trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, step out in faith, and as we do that, all that God desires of us is in fact fulfilled. So walking in the Spirit is the the means by which we are sanctified. We can't sanctify through the law. We can't sanctify ourselves through our own efforts. It's chapter 7. But walking in the Spirit is the means. And we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the power that is available to be able to walk in the Spirit. And... Recently, we noticed a passage that it's not in the imperative, but it implies a response on our part. And we would say that believers participate in our sanctification. It's totally a work of God. God accomplishes it by means of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not automatic. It's not imposed. It's not forced. And, in fact, there's examples in Scripture of believers that appear that either their growth is very slow and perhaps even, in some cases, even stifle altogether. So it requires that we, in fact, do respond, that we do live in the power of the Holy Spirit volitionally. In other words, the command the command is not to be indwelt. Remember, we talked about this. That's automatic. That's at the moment of justification or salvation. The command is to be filled, which when we were there, we noted, what is it, verse 13 or 12 maybe? We noted that the filling of the Holy Spirit is a command. It's an exhortation implying that the possibility is there of not being filled. So it's different from indwelling presence in that when we live in the flesh, when we live in chapter 7, then then we are essentially cutting off the power that's available, and we're living in the flesh, and we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we mean by filled, being controlled, or being influenced by the Holy Spirit. So we participate, and in our outline, we're in the middle of chapter 8. We saw the first 11 chapters, the power that's available over the sinful flesh. And we saw that the important concept of sonship, in fact, that's the paragraph that we're in, 12 through 17, and I'm breaking this one down, obligation to the Spirit, that's 12 and 13, 
That's what I was alluding to a moment ago, where we participate in uh, sanctification. In that, we exercise volition. We make choices. We can make the right ones or we can make the wrong ones. The right ones, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, 12:13, And we explain the idea of obligation. And since you guys weren't here, we spoke of, it's not obligation in that, oh, now I have to just do these things, gut it out in my own strength. But it's more, God has so overwhelmingly blessed me with so many blessings and so much. I use the illustration of someone giving you a Lamborghini free of charge. It's in your name. You are full owner. And now what do you do? You take that thing out and you drive it in the woods, out in the, in the bush. You drive it through the forest, get it all scratched up, right? Is that what you do? No, you have a sense of, man, this is, this is great. I don't deserve this. It's grace. I need to take care of this. I need to maintain it. I'll keep it shined up. I'll keep it in the garage, etc. That's the obligation that is in view there. We compared it to Paul in another passage earlier in the book of Romans. But it also implies that that's the participation part in sanctification. So we talked about sonship last time, the sonship of believers. Not only are we indwelt in the Holy Spirit, but we are in a new relationship with God, a family relationship where a father cares for us. In fact, we're still looking at other aspects of that. Extending that to adoption of believers, we're still talking about sonship, 15 and 16, and that's where we left off last time. So, first first of all, verse 15, 815, for you have not received a spirit of slavery. He keeps reminding us of chapter 7. In fact, he keeps reminding us of chapters 1 through 3, where we were slaves to sin, In fact, you might notice on the outline sheet at the bottom there, kind of that sequence. We were slaves to sin, no option to be able to do anything positive. So he's reminding us, for you have not received a spirit of slavery. And this is also in the context of the believer. So it extends to living the Christian life, either in the flesh or in the spirit. If we're in the the flesh, we go back to that old way of life. And it's like living with a spirit of slavery. We talked about that last time. Leading to fear again. There's always fear of punishment, fear of consequences, fear that is real. But uh, we don't have to live in that because we have another option. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. And what I'd like to do is just review real quickly the essence of what we did last time, defining this little phrase, adoption as sons. One word in the Greek text. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Now, I also mentioned that there are many options. I'm kind of going differently than the New American Standard. New American Standard leaves it lowercase in the terms of the spirit. And you could have both spirits lowercase, in other words, the inward disposition of humans or the human spirit. That's how the American Standard takes both of them. Some commentators take both of them as the Holy Spirit. 
but I have a problem with the first one. Or another option is to have the first one as lowercase and the second one is the Holy Spirit. I think there's more evidence. In light of the context, he's been talking about the Holy Spirit throughout and uh, it makes sense that the uh, receive a spirit of adoption as sons because Holy Spirit is involved in bringing us into that relationship. So spirit of adoption as sons. So we talked about the concept of adoption. I looked at the background in the first century. The Greeks had a system where you could legally adopt from one family or another or an orphan that was without a family into a family. The emphasis was the family relationship. The Romans extended that, and it was not only adoption in the sense of joining a new family or being brought into a family, but there was actually a ceremony at about age 14, 15, somewhere in that time frame, when that child now becomes an adult, he would be officially and legally now be part of that family in the Roman system. And I think Paul may be alluding to either of these or both of these in this passage when he uses the word adoption as sons. And I'm inclined to include at least the Roman idea here because of what he's going to talk about after the next passage. So that's a little bit of the background. And we also mentioned that in the Old Testament, there's examples. Moses himself was an adopted uh, baby, remember? Adopted into the Egyptian pharaoh's household. So he was trained and very familiar with Egyptian culture. God chose him, protected him. Remember, many of the Jewish babies were killed. Now, the parents didn't know the background. And you know the story. Esther, also a woman that God used to preserve the nation of Israel. She was an adopted uh, girl. Her parents had died, adopted by Mordecai, her uncle. And then the interesting one that we talked about where love is expressed. David could have uh, killed the entire family of Saul legally. In fact, he had to do away with most of them because they were a threat. Saul himself. But Mephibosheth, I have a hard time going through the whole thing. He was a cripple. David expressed grace, love, compassion to him, adopted him as a son, and he lived, I won't try to pronounce it again, (laughs) keep from stumbling over it. He lived within the household of David, and the text says he ate at the king's table the rest of his life. And that's an example of Old Testament grace, love, in terms of adoption. And I think some of all of these elements are part of who we are, adopted into the family of God. So here's the term itself. It's one word, but it has two parts. Huio is the part that refers to sons or huios, sons. And then the last part, thesias has the idea of something placed somewhere, placement or installed, and that's where the Roman idea of maybe even a ceremony where the son is placed or set within the family in a legal sense. And they would have a like a coming out party, like 
some Hispanic families have for young girls, where they'll have a big party and a ceremony, the girls coming out. They had something like that for the sons in the Roman Empire. So that's where we get this idea of not only part of the family, but an official day set aside to honor and to recognize publicly the reaching of adulthood. And that I think all of those elements are in there. So in the New American Standard, it uses three words to translate this one word. So adoption as sons. And the sons, and I mentioned also, there's three words in the Greek text that speak of children. One of them is babies, like the baby of John the Baptist in the womb, even, referred to as a baby, you pro-life people. (laughs) (laughs) Scriptures view the baby as human, you might say. Then there's tekna, which is also in this text, in verse 16, we'll look at it. This is a young child, a toddler, not so much a crying baby, but one that is younger. And then sons is still, can be a child, but it's a child that is more mature, probably later in teens. And in fact, it's sonship that continues. In other words, you're always a son of a family and of a father. And then we have the spiritual analogy that we have, and I think, turn to Galatians, let's take a look at it, and then uh, we'll move on to the next part of the passage. In Galatians, what I want you to notice is at Galatians 4, I think this illustrates this, this concept, everybody there? Now notice, now I say, as long as the air... And the reason I bring this out is because we're going to talk about airship next. I say as long as the heir is a techna, child, anywhere from even a baby all the way to before manhood, you might say, or womanhood. The heir is a child. He does not differ at all from a slave. This is the Roman idea. And in fact, I mentioned last time, that an unworthy son could even be set aside and the father could adopt a worthy son and give the inheritance and give the family name to this adopted son. In fact, historically, there's examples of that. One of the Caesars was actually adopted in that way. I think it was Julius Caesar. I've got to check the history on that. So, I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. In other words, by legal means, he's owner of all things, just by being part of the family. So here's a child, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. The father was dominant. The father basically was head over the family. And the father has tutors. Now, we're talking about an extended family, which is very common in the Roman Empire. There would be many children. There would also be many slaves that worked alongside to manage an estate. So there might be slaves, there might be sons. And these younger kids would be treated much like a slave, and they would be trained, put under a tutor. That's the imagery that we have here. So also we, he's using an analogy here, while we were children, were held in bondage under the 
elemental, elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What he's using, the analogy here, is the Old Testament saints were like children under the tutelage or the tutorship of the law under the Mosaic Covenant. But now, with the Son coming, the ultimate Son, in the fullness of time, now we have a new era. He's contrasting the two eras where there's freedom. And the literal individual family where the Son reached adulthood, he would be given lots more freedom. And he would be treated more like an adult after he has gone through the training that the family had instituted there. Now, I don't know how far to read on. In order that he might redeem those who were under the law, there's the law there, referring back to the son, that we might receive the adoption as son, same word. Receive adulthood, receive freedom. He's using an analogy now. Under the law is like under as children. Now the son has come of age, just as the fullness of time. See all the imagery there? And because you are sons, huyas, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Very similar to what we have in this passage. See that? Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. See the parallelism with what we have in Romans? Now go back to the book of Romans, and we'll uh, continue our exposition here. So that's the analogy. Similarly, Ephesians 1.5, we won't look up that passage, but this passage concludes like the Galatians one, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So with this new relationship, not only do we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and all the resurrection power available, but in every circumstance here, and by the way, that little word there, crying, In the Old Testament, there's a lot of psalms that encompass all kinds of circumstances that that same word, at least the Greek translation of the Old Testament where this word is used, in all of those different circumstances, whatever we find ourselves, in some cases very difficult circumstances, we can cry out, and in those circumstances we cry out to him, for deliverance, for empowerment, for enablement, for all that we need, because he is our daddy. Most intimate relationship that you can have with the father. Abba is the Aramaic translation of father, but it's that father, child, close, family, intimate love relationship. We cry out to him. So regardless of the circumstance, we can cry out in praise as well. There's some psalms where the word is used in that sense. And we just let God know our appreciation and our thanksgiving. But also in the depths of the deepest of pressures, we can cry out to him for all the enablement that we need. So we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, God, I'm going to lay this before you because I can't handle it. I can't do this. I need your enablement. I need your intervention in this. So it's parallel with the passage we saw in Galatians. So that's verse 14. 
So we have adoption of believers, 15 through 16. 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. He's giving us more kind of reinforcement, more encouragement here. There's this relationship that we have with God as Father. We also have the relationship of an indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, when we talked about that, we have Christ indwelling us. We have the Father indwelling us as well. Remember, we looked at some of those passages. But here he's talking now also focusing on the Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. Not only can we directly come in the presence of our Father, but the Holy Spirit is there as well, giving us encouragement. The Spirit himself is saying to the Father, as if the Father needed reminding, but uh, testifying that we belong to the Father. Now, it says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. Some commentators and a lot of believers translate differently. Is this what you're going to ask um, about? Yeah, I guess so. I had always thought about the Holy Spirit testifying with my spirit, helping me to deal with insecurities, doubts. Yeah. Right. Right. God, I've about different things I might really... Yeah, and that's the common interpretation, okay? And it could go either way with the preposition. I take it in the sense that with our spirit, in other words, our spirit cries out to the Father, and that's a testimony that we recognize that relationship. But the spirit as well reinforces that and testifies to the Father as well. In other words, with our spirit, rather than to our spirit. I think the preposition... you have your Greek text handy? No. I've got it in my notes. I can look it up. I'll clarify it next week. Okay. But the two ways, I think Bill was alluding to the Spirit testifying to our spirit and or testifying with, in other words, testifying to God with our spirit. See the distinction there? I'll let you decide. I think... Grammatically, the the one with our spirit is probably the better translation there. And the testimony is that we are children of God. So there is no doubt, there's no question that we have this relationship. It's just that when we are in the midst of living life, we get clouded, we get distracted, we, we think of other things, and all these things kind of cloud this relationship and we get sucked into living in the flesh. But this is the truth. This is the reality. This is what we have to focus on. This is what we have to put our minds to. Remember, set your minds on certain things. These are the things to set our minds on, that we are children of God. And there's the technon. So we are not only sons viewed as adults, but we are still in this intimate family relationship that spans the whole spectrum of childhood. Connie? Would that be kind of like um, where this says, you know, they say, oh, Lord, you did all these things in your name. He says, I never knew you. Would that be like, you know, yes. they're calling out to God, but the Holy Spirit is when they're not believers. That's right. They're not believers. Right. Yeah. They have all the religious baggage and externals. They go to church, etc., or in that case, synagogue and all that goes along with it. But they don't have that family relationship. They're not children. They're not born again. 
that's the testifying spirit. The spirit, yeah. It's not like that servant that, that you meet at the door and they either deem you worthy of going in to see the master or not because you have, don't have. Don't have proper credentials, family credentials, exactly. Then verse 17, and I want to spend most of our time here, 817, we may not even finish it up. The airship of believers. Airship. Not airship. (laughs) All right? That's a beautiful airship, but that's not what's in view here. But airship. H-E-I-R. Got it? So verse 13. If children, if we have this family relationship, much like in the culture... There was an estate that would be passed on. And or, I'm going to look at some Old Testament ideas there. There's property that is involved in the family. Ownership. And in fact, the New Testament concept is a little bit different from our concept. It has, uh, the biblical concept has both elements, but In some passages and in some places, the stress is on the present rather than in a future receiving of an inheritance. And I'll try to illustrate that. So if children, heirs also, heirs of God. Interesting there. And we take that in a couple of ways. Do we, are we heirs of God or is God our inheritance? I think in this context, I take the latter that We inherit God, okay? But we'll talk about that. If children, heirs also. So he's taking it one step. He talked about us being children, adopted, adopted as sons, and because we're adopted as sons, we have an estate. We have an inheritance. So let's spend some time looking at this concept. And again, there are different background elements that I think Paul is alluding to. Now, if you're writing to that audience in the Roman Empire, they would immediately think, if you use the word heir, H-E-I-R, they would think of all of these cultural and background elements and understand the analogy that Paul is painting here. So heirship, let me give you a little bit of the background. The Roman background, in terms of the firstborn, There was not a sharp distinction between the firstborn and all the other children. Oftentimes an estate would be divided even equally. Now you know that's different from the Jewish concept, right? So the firstborn was equal to all the others. And that is illustrated by that uh, Galatians passage. The child is viewed just like the rest, like slaves, like the other slaves in the, in the family. And so also all the other children were on a more equal basis. In the Jewish, the firstborn had a double portion. And there's lots of examples in the Old Testament of that idea. So I think Paul, Jewish background, is speaking in terms of heirship. And the readers, particularly the Romans, would understand the Roman background probably more so than the Jewish background. Now, the Old Testament... This is also important in terms of background, even though I've got it number two, and on your outline sheet I leave it out, but you can include it under background there. The Old Testament, the inheritance primarily, and I give you lots of passages here. In fact, would somebody look up Genesis fifteen seven, and how about 
number 34-2. Who's got the first one? Dwayne's got Genesis 15. Somebody got numbers 34-2. And we won't look at the other ones, but they're similar. You can jot them down in your notes, those of you who are taking notes. Who's got numbers? Go ahead and read, and then uh, somebody will get Bill's got numbers, okay? Genesis 15-7. Then you said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. Now, this is Abraham, God speaking to him, brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. Keep reading. Brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. To give you this land to inherit. And he's in the land. The Abrahamic covenant promises the land. In this context, it's a future possession. Bill, Numbers 34-2. So this is God speaking. Command the sons of Israel and say to them, This is the land that shall fall to your inheritance, even the land of Canaan. Okay. That one still looks forward because they're not in the land yet, but when they're in the land, it'll be their inheritance. That'll be their possession. The land was possessed by the children of Israel when they entered the land. So it has these two elements to it. In our culture, when we think of an inheritance, somebody has to die, and then we get possession. In the Old Testament, the idea, starting with the children of Israel, particularly the land, it was something that was possessed immediately. And once they were in the land, it would be passed on, but the children still possessed it. In other words, they were owners of it, even though the father managed the estate, children had ownership. This might be illustrated in Luke chapter 15, where the son says, give me my portion. Uh, He took ownership. All he was doing, he owned it before, and the second son had his ownership as well. All he's doing is saying, I want to take management as well. And he squanders it. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. So possession is more the idea, and full Management, you might say, would be the future aspect. So keep in mind that aspect because I think that's what we have here. We have possession of whatever our inheritance is, but there's also some future aspects to it. I'll try to illustrate that with passages. In Ezekiel, we have an interesting passage. In fact, it's way towards the end of Israel's history. This is at the end of their national history on the occasion of them being destroyed as a nation, Jerusalem being destroyed, the city and the temple being destroyed, the nation being taken into captivity, looking ahead, Yahweh, God himself, is going to be their possession or their inheritance. And the word, the Hebrew concept of inheritance is in that passage, Ezekiel 44, 28, where God is their inheritance. Now, I'm mentioning this because I think that's the concept that we have in Romans. We're heirs of God, is what the text says. And I think it's anticipating, possibly, our era, but more specifically, the New Covenant era, when Israel will be regathered and all of Israel shall be saved. So that's the background. In the New Testament, we have uh, a variety of terms. In fact, I counted nine different terms. I count nine terms in the New Testament that are related to these few that I will show you here. 
First of all, we have kleranamas. That's usually translated heir. In other words, it's referring to the one that receives the estate. Got the transliteration there for you as well. Then we have a noun form, kleranamia. Kleranamia. That has the idea of inheritance, but in the biblical sense, inheritance in the two ideas of immediate possession. In other words, possession, you might even say ownership, or in some cases it could even be translated property. Inheritance, possession, property, you could translate that same word. But keep in mind these two ideas of present possession, which is different from our culture, and also future implications. Then we have the verb form. These are all similar, very similar. Kleranomeo, kleranomeo, and it has the same idea to possess, to possess in the verb form, to receive as a possession. So when the word inheritance in the Bible, keep these two ideas in mind. It's not only, you know, in other words, don't restrict it to our idea of having to wait for the future. We have an inheritance now. Now, it's not fully possessed, you might say. It's not fully experienced. There are still future aspects of it that still await us. And this is very important when we get down to some of the usages of the word in the New Testament. So that's the term Jesus. Notice this is an interesting one. Somebody look up Hebrews 1, 2. And somebody look up uh, Matthew nineteen twenty nine. Who's got the first one? Bill's got the first one. Who wants nineteen twenty nine? Jenny's got that one. You got the Hebrews one. Okay. Uh, stay in Hebrews because you're gonna read two of them. You want to switch to Matthew nineteen? Oh no, that's fine. Okay. First of all, an interesting passage, and by the way, this is one of the few. There's a couple of others that allude to Christ having an inheritance. Hebrews 1, 2, you got that one, Jenny? But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay, Jesus is heir of all things. Heir of all things. In other words, he is heir of the not only the universe but I would think even the unseen world, heir of all things. And I bring that one out because in Romans 8.17, what does it say about us? Not only are we heirs of God, but... Joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. Everything Christ has, he shares with us. Very significant passage, Hebrews 1.2. Now, here's an element that you probably may not have heard about, you probably heard all that I've already said so far, right? Nothing new, nothing surprising. Here's one, if you do a word study on all of these words of the word group, you're going to find kind of two aspects again. Not only the present and future aspects, but you're going to find some passages that seem to emphasize this inheritance as a free gift, as opposed to a second aspect, what? Based on something that perhaps we need to do. And the reason I'm bringing it out, I think the Romans 8.17 passage is one of the second ones. 
because there's a condition at the end of verse 17. You following here? Mm-hmm. Or have I gone totally beyond your thinking here? Two aspects. This is the first aspect. I'm going to get to the second aspect on this slide later on. As a free gift, as simply being part of the family, we didn't choose anything. We didn't do anything. We are saved by grace and grace alone. And there's passage that reinforce that. Matthew 19, 29 is one of them. Bill's got that one. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Okay, yeah. Okay, 1929. Read it again. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or for children or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and inherit eternal life. Inherit eternal life. Now, all of the passages relating to receiving eternal life are on the basis of salvation by grace and grace alone. Okay? Eternal life. Free gift. All right? Now, in Hebrews 1.14, you got that one, Jenny? Are they not all ministry spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Those who are to inherit salvation. Salvation is by grace, through faith, no works, free gift. So there are aspects of our inheritance that are a gift. And there's, in fact, most of the passages would fall under this category. Most of the passages would be of those. In fact, let me read some more of them to you. For example, Galatians 3.29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, not E-R-R-O-S, H-E-I-R-S, heirs according to promise. So, heirs, and he's talking if you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ, do you earn your belonging to Christ? No, that's, again, salvation by grace. Titus 3, 7, so being justified by his grace, we don't do anything, we would be made heirs again, H-E-I-R-S, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there's others as well, okay? So as a free gift, and by the way, that's that present tense sense as well. We have as a, as a possession Eternal life now is what we've been talking about in Romans 8. It's whether we live it in abundance or we live it in Romans chapter 7 in the flesh. That's the issue. So we are possessors of eternal life now. There's future ramifications of it. All right. So it says, if children, heirs also, heirs of God, you didn't earn that, Heirs of God. And then this other phrase, very interesting. In fact, a tremendous concept. And fellow heirs with Christ. Now, there's debate over the meaning of this in light of the next part where it says, if indeed we suffer with him, there's a condition there. Two ways of taking it. And uh, the debate is over how you punctuate. Punctuation sometimes is important. Keep in mind, the manuscripts that we have in reconstructing the New Testament does not have punctuation. 
In fact, all of the words are run together. There aren't even spaces. No punctuation. Connie. So is this, if indeed, uh, definitely conditional, or is it one of those ones that's like that we can read there since? It's definitely conditional. So it's not since. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's conditional. But I think it's better to kind of separate, we put a comma here, heirs of God. Uh, you could put another one here and even translate the chi there. Even fellow heirs, or you could say and fellow heirs with Christ, because I think he's making, I think there's a distinction here. So I would not put the comma here. If you want to put it one, I would put it here. Fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed, and if this condition only applies to this part, the, to the fellow heirship. And I'm not going to have time to develop it. We're going to have to wait till next week to go into a little bit more detail, but I want to introduce it. Betty. Well, I wonder about the definition of supper. You know, if we accept Christ, we're accepting his salvation and his crucifixion, and inherently we suffer that with him accept that. There's a, there's a sense in that from based on Romans 6, yes. So it seems to me that that's just uh, in the salvation policy. Only in that positional sense. So, so yes, but... I don't think that's necessarily what's in view here. I think what he's getting at, because he's going to continue in verse 18 with this idea of suffering and the ultimate hope that we have. We've run out of time, so let me just summarize here so you're not kind of left hanging, and then we'll develop it a little bit further, and I'll give you some other verses that kind of reinforce what I'm talking about here. But what I think is this airship that he's talking about here that's unconditional in terms of once you're a believer, it's not based on anything we do, but fellow heirs. Here's where we get into that whole area, and Bill's taught on this, and I've taught on this, and we've reviewed this over and over. How we live now has an effect on rewards. So there is a reward aspect to this airship as well. Okay, you got it? And it is dependent. In other words, we can escape some of the suffering. We can respond wrongly to some of that suffering. If we accept it and experience the same sufferings that Christ did, we don't have to look for it. You just simply live in the Spirit. It'll find you. And if you respond rightly to that suffering, your inheritance in the future is enhanced. It's like rewards. The same concept as rewards. Does that make sense? We'll develop it further next week. So what I'll get into next week is there's an aspect that's a free gift. And there's an aspect of our airship as rewards in the kingdom. And I'll give you some more detail on that next time. Okay? Clear? You may not agree, but... (laughs) Okay. Who wants to close first? Jenny, you haven't been here in a long time. Close for us. Amen. 